You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and this is Five Things That Make Life Better. My guest this week is Mark Harris, the very smart and stylish journalist who became Mike Nichols' biographer. His new book, Mike Nichols, A Life, has just been published by Penguin, and I couldn't put it down. I mean, there are such intimate details about the work that Mike Nichols did, his collaborations with Elaine May and Neil Simon and others, Scott Rudin. I mean, it's really insider Broadway and Hollywood, but in a way that I think is fascinating because Mike Nichols was so fascinating. He said to someone once, it takes me three hours to become Mike Nichols every day. So you'll enjoy Mark. He's also a writer for New York Magazine, has written other books about film, Pictures at a Revolution, Five Movies and the Birth of the New Hollywood, and Five Came Back, A Story of Hollywood and the Second World War. He is married to Tony Kushner. Now, before that, I have a few things to say. The first is, at no time over the past weekend, did I worry about what was brewing in the White House. It felt great. Don't you feel freer? I do. There's a grown-up in charge. And in fact, there are many grown-ups in positions of power and authority in Washington. What a relief. But there is also a mantle of hypocrisy draped over the Congress like a big, fat shawl. It's truly demoralizing. Neera Tandon is unapprovable because of a few tweets she wrote during the terrible years of Trump, even though nothing she said was close to the poison said by Trump or Pompeo, McConnell, Jim Jordan, etc., etc. Lindsey Graham, probably the most pious hypocrite of them all, I have my eye on him, read her tweets aloud during the confirmation hearings. Come on! As Dana Milbank wrote in the Washington Post, after four years of excusing lies, racism, vulgarity, law-breaking, and self-dealing by the Trump administration, your idea of healing is to defeat Biden nominees for speaking the truth. You know who you are. It's probably not you because you wouldn't be listening to me and being that person. And if you know anyone addled and possibly disturbed enough to have somehow fallen under the spell bell of QAnon, I can only shrug and hope that they regain their senses. Also this week, our dog finally got to start walking outside and peeing outside. The first pee before 7 a.m. is not my favorite thing in life anymore, but I do like a routine and the dog does provide some of routine. And Sheila is a little for me, a little unmanageable in the walk. She's so excited by the noise and the dogs and the smells and little bits of dirt on the ground. It's a bit of a challenge for me, but it gets me out there with the dog people who are all so nice and welcoming. Also, I know that having a baby dog, like having a baby person, makes me boring. I mean, you don't want to hear about every little thing the dog did, and that's kind of the excitement around here. So I really miss my exhibits. I haven't hugged the ones in California in six months. I have seen Exhibit C a few times, and that makes my heart just swell, swell with love. But that's personal, as it is everything. Before we get to Mark Harris, here is my list of five things that make my life better. Numero uno, 
Our dog breeders, April and Sue, who gave us this little pet who is just full of love and was so well taken care of. And we got to see her many times before we took her home. And uh, if a Cavapoo is in your future, let me know and I'll hook you up. Number two, our dog trainer, Sam Schmidt. There is no way that two people who have never raised a puppy before and never raised a baby together and didn't raise any babies in the 21st century could manage this adventure without some expert guidance. Sam is experienced, smart, calm, and fun. We always look forward to her visits and feel immensely grateful to have her in our lives. Number three, Bulgarian feta. Yes, I mean feta cheese. Now, I have loved feta cheese ever since I discovered it, probably not until I went to Greece in the 70s. It's very sharp. It's great with tomatoes. It's great, but sometimes it's a little too sharp, or sometimes the feta I have bought in New York has not been great. And then my Exhibit A and his wife told me about Bulgarian feta, which is not as easy to find. It is less sharp, a little less salty. I crumble it on pretty much everything. And it's like adding a wake-up call to your food. I get mine from Zabar's. Number four, Dolly Parton, who in her giggly easy way got her Moderna vaccine on camera, chiding naysayers as cowards. You know, I think she reaches a lot of people who probably do watch Fox News and probably do believe in all kinds of things. And she didn't tell them that she helped finance the Moderna vaccine, but that's because she's a humble hero. She did sing as she was getting her shot to the tune of Jolene. She did sing Vaccine. She is one of a kind. And number five, The Graduate. With Mike Nichols on my mind, I revisited the first movie he ever directed, written by Calder Winningham and Buck Henry and starring newcomer Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft. The Graduate gets at feelings of isolation, directionlessness, decadence in a sunlit Southern California world of plenty. Plenty of drinks, plenty of free time, plenty of money, plenty of frustration, plenty of cigarettes. The love story that takes hold still takes one's breath away. And the film, as they say, holds up. So without much further ado, Mark Harris, the biographer of Mike Nichols, coming right up. It's so great that Mark Harris is on the podcast today because I've been reading his book, Mike Nichols, A Life. And I have, I would say the, the scientific number is a gazoodle number of questions. Mark, it's such a great read. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. Oh, the detail. Well, first of all, I want to say that Mike Nichols, of all the figures in New York cultural life, Mike Nichols was the one person I was always very much wanting to meet because he seemed to be brilliant on so many fronts. You have revealed his inner life in a way that now I feel maybe I was better off. Um, 
What a complicated guy. Well, I think probably if you had gotten to meet him, you would really have liked him, depending, I guess, on when in his life you met. But during the time that I knew him, which was really in his 70s, in the last 12 or 14 years of his life, he was really a happy, very settled man Mm -hmm. in many ways, with most of the hardest struggles of his life pretty well behind him. Now, I know that he directed, I thought, an exquisite production of Angels in America for HBO, and you must have met Mike Nichols then, as your husband is playwright Tony Kushner. That's right. That was the first time I met him, and I was trying to remember when the actual first time I met him was, but weirdly, I can't. I think it Hmm. might have been while he was working. Like I think it's possible that it was in Central Park on the night that he was filming the, the scene where the Lewis sex goes, scene. yeah, the sex yeah. scene, which yeah. is certainly like meeting him in action, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, but um, I feel like I got to know him very early in what turned out to be the extremely long process of making Angels in America. And he was a delight. Well, he was so clever. I mean, just every little bon mot that came out of his mouth. He thanked one of his wives at one point when he won a Tony, I think. He said, thank you for sticking with me through the thin. Right. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So you asked him if you could be his biographer. No, I didn't. You did Um, not? I I did not. Because while Mike was alive, he died in December of 2014, I had no intention of writing a biography of him. I had interviewed him pretty extensively for my first book, Pictures at a Revolution, which was partly about the making of The Graduate. Right. I knew what a great interview he was, but you know, the the only conversations that Mike and I ever had about biography was that I would often urge him to write his autobiography. Right. And and that was something that he expressed no interest in and pretty much always joked that he had made things all but impossible for any future biographer by <laughs> by you know destroying his papers and stuff. Uh-huh. Um, very late in his life, I know that he got sort of interested in the idea of doing a book with someone that wouldn't have been a biography, but would have been him talking about each piece of work that he did. Uh-huh. Um, but he died before that could ever come to anything. So so no, it wasn't until after Mike died that my publisher came to me and said, do you think this might be something you're interested in? And that's when I began to think about it. And You had to get permission of his family. I wanted to. I mean, I just felt that, you know, I knew Diane and um, I would not have wanted to proceed without her consent and without the consent of Mike's three kids, who I didn't know. Mm -hmm. But it just felt like, you know, while I thought he would be a fascinating subject and, and I knew it would be a fascinating life to explore for however many years it would take me to do it. Just the idea, like, I couldn't have done it if Diane hadn't wanted me to. And logistically, I couldn't have done it if she hadn't been kind enough, not only to consent, but to let me make that consent public. Because this was such an interview-based book, and that consent certainly opened more doors for me than I can count. Well, I mean, the kinds of people that you were talking to were not just theater people, but Gloria Steinem, who was one of his dates or girlfriends, and obviously Meryl Streep and Lauren Michaels and people from all across the social, what would you call it? The A-team in New York, you know, the glamorous life that was so important to him. 
Right. It was a Venn diagram of six different circles, you know, movies mm-hmm. and theater and publishing and politics and fashion and photography. He just knew media. I mean, he knew so many people in so many different worlds in New York that he was kind of ultimately the only person that all of those worlds had in intersected common. with. Yeah. What were some of the bigger surprises uh, as you were researching his life and going into very deeply what was said, what was done, the mistakes made in early? He made some very bad decisions in his life as well as great ones. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was a hard, complicated thing to explore. I have to say one of the most embarrassing days of my work on the book and of my life was (laughs) finally calling Gloria Steinem, who, you know, I revere. And like, this is my first chance ever to talk to Gloria Steinem. And I'm like, can we talk about one of your (laughs) ex-boyfriends? Well, I'm thinking just that, or, you know, uh, plumbing Elaine May And it not being about Elaine May so much is about him. Well, it was really about them. Them, them. yeah. And and she was amazing about it. I think that there were definitely themes, in terms of surprises, there were themes that emerged months or even years into my research for the book that I certainly did not realize were going to be as important as they were when I started. Mm -hmm. One of them was depression. Mm -hmm. How much Mike wrestled with depression and, and how long it lasted. Yes, And I would say another was, you know, in my head, when I started, I had Mike kind of pegged, I thought, as this guy who had these extraordinary 50-year careers as a theater director and a movie director, Mm -hmm. the same 50 years going back and forth. And before that, this other extraordinary career as a performer with Elaine May. Right. But I don't think I understood until I got deeper into it, and certainly not until I talked to Elaine May, of how much his style as a director and his approach as a director and really his entire professional life had been shaped by his work with Elaine May. Like how formative that was yes. in, in every way for the next you know 50 or 60 years of his life. It wasn't just kind of the appetizer to a main course that was a different career. It was the beginning of him. And also, in so many ways, I learned from your book that she was in a way she was the star and he held the mic for her there's a place where you say she would go on and on until he would cut her off and sometimes he would you know seemingly be the voice of reason in their sketches in fact i've started watching some again because i knew we'd be talking and i was amazed by really how incredibly inventive she was and is Right. I mean, he always said, and I didn't find anybody who disagreed with this, that she was the more brilliant inventor of the two of them, that if you created a character or a situation, she could fill it endlessly with invention. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways, because Mike wasn't as inventive as Elaine was in that way, he developed a separate skill, which was to create the shape of a scene. The structure, yeah. Right. Right. Which and he in, brought to his directing work. Yeah. I think that's really true. I think in mm-hmm. some ways that's a writing skill, you know, to know when to move from one beat to the next. But it's also a directing skill. It's about pacing and it's about really having almost a sixth sense for whether the audience is with you or not and when they're getting tired of something and when they're really into something. So I think Mike, without knowing it, was training himself in a really early way to be a director in that work with Elaine. 
Yes, yes, I got that from your book. I also got, of course, his infatuation with wealth, with money, <laughs> with things, with prestige that seemed to cover up a multitude of insecurities. Yeah, I think I'm very wary of ascribing rosebud style, like single childhood right. explanations to things. Right. But but I think when you look at Mike's childhood, which had poverty in it, but I think even more dramatically had a sudden slide from middle class comfort to poverty when his father died, which was when Mike was 13 or 14. I think that gave Mike a kind of feeling of fragility, like mm -hmm. money is something that you can have and it's something that can go away. And if it goes away, you're in big trouble. And so the idea is that you had always better have enough of it or maybe even too much. And and I think that stayed with him even in the 1980s, which is when he has really a nervous breakdown. Right. The theme of that breakdown in a way, the it's paranoia. Fear of, fear of poverty. Right. And Yeah. And it's this horrible, like the people who told me about Mike in those months said this thing, which was so horrible to me, which is that simultaneously he knew he was being irrational and he was in the grip of something that he simply could not let go of, which was this terror that his children were going to be destitute, mm -hmm. you know, that he couldn't pay for their schooling. Right, right. And it wasn't you know, it was a bad reaction to a prescription medication, basically, Halcyon. But mm -hmm. but you can have all kinds of different bad psychoses related to medication. And it's interesting to me that that was his. That was, it wasn't that his reputation would mm -hmm. vanish or that his yes, work would right. vanish. It was that he'd be in the poorhouse or his right. children would be. Right. And, and he started selling off assets and then regretting it as he was doing it, because as you say, he both knew it was irrational, but couldn't help himself. Right. And it wasn't, I will say it wasn't entirely irrational because Mike in those days tended to live like from the time he got successful, he tended to live right to the edge of his income. <laughs> right. Like, I'm always stunned by the fact that very soon after his first success as a director, which is Barefoot in the Park on Broadway, he managed to buy a triplex penthouse in the Beresford. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, like I the know Beresford. That, now, you know, for anybody not in New York, it's one of the premier buildings on Central Park. It's where Leonard Bernstein lived, didn't he? Or did he live in the Dakota? I can't remember. It's where Jerry Seinfeld lives now. It's big. It's right. grand. It's amazing. Yeah. And I know that, you know, 50 or 55 years ago, Central Park West was not entirely the completely desirable address that it is now. I mean, it was a little more affordable, but it was still expensive. And a triplex penthouse, I mean, it's unimaginable to me. But right from the start, it was really important. I mean, it's very specific Manhattan geography to me, but like Mike goes from the West Side to the Upper East Side to the Beresford. And Elaine May just moves right to Riverside, Riverside Drive. Drive. Which, yeah. Like way which more mellow family yeah. neighborhood. Um, it, it really tells you where their priorities were in the early 1960s. I took that right to heart the way you did. The other thing, of course, and it's something that I had heard about years and years ago, but obviously was his big open secret was that he was bald and he was bald as a child. He was kind of bald ed. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> it wasn't something he could help, but due to a bad reaction to 
whooping cough or scarlet fever <laughs> I think it's medication? Most, m- most cases of baldness are not anyone's fault. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you know that's not true. It was, it was a bad reaction to a vaccine. Right. Um, or at least he was told that because, you know, this is something that happened in Berlin when Mike was four. So all we have to go on is what his father, who was a doctor, told him. But but yes, Mike could not, uh, from the time he was a very small child, grow hair. And until his father died, for you know, for the first 13 years of his life or so, Mike was not allowed to wear any kind of hairpiece because in the sort of bad psychology of the time, the idea was, no, 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 you have to get used to it and just get comfortable with stiff upper lip yeah right right and so he was very self-conscious he was bullied he was embarrassed i mean we can all relate to that that's kind of the original sin that perhaps propelled him in some way absolutely and oh what a great story about how he went to see elizabeth taylor in rome while she was making cleopatra at the encouragement or behest of richard burton Right. This is sort of an important part of, I guess, what you would call the origin story of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf that I didn't know about, that Nichols had gotten to know Burton when they were both on Broadway together. Um, Burton was just across the alley from him in Camelot, and they'd become friends. And through him, he met Elizabeth Taylor. And when the Cleopatra shoot was dragging on and on and on, and it went on for so long that Richard Burton actually had to leave the set to go make another movie, he said to Mike, oh, come babysit Elizabeth. She, She can't go out she's trapped in her villa because this she was, was right too when, famous yeah right and this was right when the news that burton and taylor were having an affair had broken and was causing like an international scandal so mike who was really at loose ends at that moment because that was after nichols and may had split up goes to rome and he and elizabeth taylor become instant friends and it's through her i mean eventually through her that he gets the job directing virginia wolf but also through her More, also importantly <laughs> She she said to him, darling, that thing on your head is no good and introduced him to her master wig maker, right? Right. This guy, Paul Huntley, who just recently retired, who was like the great theatrical wig maker of the last 60 years in theater. And she called him and said, do you also do personal wigs? Because I have someone I want you to do a favor. And that was, I guess, in a way, a very unique kind of lifelong relationship. There was this thing called the Huntley box that contained Mike's hairpiece and um, And eyebrows. Eyebrows, yeah. Yeah. that That would travel from location to location with him. You know, he had several, obviously. I was going to say, he had sort of a more boyish look. And at one point, his had long sideburns. Right. It evolved in the 70s. Every every decade, yeah. Um, And they were really good hair pieces. But I think, as Mike once said, I think to George Siegel, he said, it takes me three hours every day to become Mike Nichols. And that idea of literally having to get out of bed in the morning and kind of compose. Glue your face on. Yeah. Yeah. To compose a self. I think is very, you know, how can you not imagine that 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 has a lot to do with how you see the world and how you want the world to see you? And yet everybody fell for him, men and women. I mean, he was so dynamic. He was so clever. He was so... I guess, generous to his friends and fun. And you you go to his house and you meet Lillian Hellman and you meet <laughs> Paul Simon. I mean, it just seems like it was a wonderful, wonderful life. I think that's true in many ways. I mean, Mike was, we talked about his obsession with money, which was dominant at times, but Mike was always extraordinarily 
generous about sharing his life, about sharing the way he lived, about bringing people in. I, I mean, he and Diane really were these kind of immaculate hosts. I think Mike thought that money was fun, that it could buy you fun things. And he, he wanted people to come into his world and share that. You know, there... <laughs> He liked them to spend money, too. <laughs> I think so. You know, it, Well, you talked about how he went to auctions at Sotheby's and Christie's just to watch Jack Nicholson buy a half million dollar Matisse and how he somehow got Candace Bergen to buy an Arabian horse, even though she had no <laughs> place to put it. Right. I love that. Um, she's, yeah. so, she's so funny about that story that he, yeah, he, he was a, a horse obsessive. He was a big Arabian horse collector. And at one point had, I think, 40 or 50 or 60 horses on his farm in Connecticut and staged this amazing auction for all of his showbiz friends. He was really serious about it, but he staged it theatrically. I mean, there was lighting. There was glitter thrown into <laughs> sawdust that yes. you know the horses walked through so that their hooves would kick up. It makes them look like. thinner, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that story is fabulous. But I don't want to uh, neglect the fact that you talk about the films and the plays as well. It's not just about him, the man. It's about him, the artist. And I'm wondering, after how many years did you spend on Mike Nichols? Uh, uh, about five. Okay, after five very intense years of rewatching everything that you could and finding people, Judith Ivy, people who had been in his plays and in his movies and his editors and the people who knew him best. What do you think was his greatest achievement as an artist? That's a hard question to answer because while I was writing the book, I was very conscious that while I could revisit all the movies, there were a number of plays that I, you know, that are gone. Like his, there is no film record, for instance, of his original productions of The Odd Couple or Barefoot in the Park. Oh, wow. And, and there's no video of his version of David Rabe's play Streamers, which a lot of people who saw it said was, you know, the best thing they ever saw on stage. So I know that I'm judging incompletely, you know. Right. But in terms of movies, I will always have, you know, pride of place, I think for me, always goes to The Graduate. The Graduate, um, yeah. But, you know, there are there are other movies. Uh, I mean, Silkwood, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Angels, Carnal mm. Knowledge. Like, there was stuff that I really, Heartburn, uh, a movie I really fell in love with while I was doing the book. There, there's a lot that really stands up to revisitation. And there are things he did on stage that I did get to see, going back to his production of Tom Stoppard's play, The Real Thing, mm -hmm. with, with Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close. That I, I saw that, still, yeah. Like, it's so vivid for me still, mm -hmm. just, just the kind of, to the, to the millisecond timing of not only the lines, but the, the revolving the, the set. The revolving you know? set, yeah. An amazing kind of clockwork direction. Were you able to interview, yeah, you probably were able to interview Buck Henry, right? Well, I interviewed him for my first book. On the graduate. Yeah, and happily in those talks, we went on to a lot of the other parts of his relationship with Mike, which also included, I mean, it was a long personal relationship, but professionally, it also included Catch-22 Catch 22 and, and, and The Day of the Dolphin, Less right. Happily. You know, so I did have a lot from Buck Henry that I could use. Well, that's amazing because the way you've woven everybody in, in their right timestamp is seamless. It just feels like it's just very full 
you know, you there's Buck Henry in this chapter. There's Alan Arkin. There's George C. Scott drunk, but there he is, <laughs> you know. Yeah, drunk is like another whole character in itself yeah. in this book. Yes. I mean, I had this preposterous array of people to interview, to choose from, and to try to go after. And, and you know, I I didn't run out of people. I ran out of time. Yeah. I, you know, I, I interviewed about 250 people, and then it was really, I mean, I felt like I had gotten who I needed and who I was going to get, but but also it was time to write. And if, yeah. you know, a, another year and I could have interviewed um, another 100 people, and I still wouldn't have exhausted the list of people whose lives he intersected with. Yeah, yeah. And when you become, when you spend five years being someone's biographer, and then, of course, now when your job is to speak about that person (laughs) that you know intimately, and at least in your case, you really did know him, what does that feel like? What does that feel like? Where's Mark in the mix? You know, honestly, I thought at the beginning of doing this, I can't do a biography. I'm way too much of an egomaniac to devote day after day after day after month after year to one other person. Who um, is not me. Yeah. <laughs> it's not me. Yeah. But, you know, it's been kind of lovely. Like, I was very sad when Mike died, and I didn't realize the degree to which working on this book would, in a way, continue a conversation with him that I was still having in my head. Uh, mm. You know, I, mentally, I was sort of asking him questions all the time while I was working on this. And then when I finished the book, which was in October or November of 2019, it felt like I had to write his decline and his death. And Mm -hmm. that felt like, in a way, losing him again. And so I was sad in a way that I didn't, I mean, sad in the actual writing in a way that I didn't anticipate I would be. And now I've had this really lovely time since the book came out of talking all about him and, you know, bringing him back. Yeah, right, bring him back. And, And when that wanes, which it will soon, because, you know, new books come out every week. I think at this point, I'll really feel ready to let that part of my life go. Although I'm, you know, incredibly grateful to have known Mike, Uh, you know, he really did change my life and my husband's life in a number of ways. And I still miss him. I really do. Well, I miss him now, too, because I feel I know him. And I want to say the book is just a splendid read. Again, it's called Mike Nichols, A Life. It's published by Penguin. And Mark Harris, let's hear your five things that make your life better. Oh, my gosh. Okay. You have a great list, I'm (laughs) going to say. I I really like your list. Um, So uh, my first one is the Library of America, Mm. which I have really found like a great companion during the pandemic. While I've had reading time, I've gone exploring in there and I become obsessed with the mystery writer Ross MacDonald. Hmm. And with James Baldwin, those were my two like big reads of the last couple of years. So that was, I'm very, very happy whenever I can dive into the Library of America. And do you read them on paper or online? I read them on paper. I feel like they're old books and they've been judged classics in a way. And I love the feeling of holding them in my hands. I Yeah, I like their serious covers. Yes, those black. Those black covers with a tiny bit of red. Right. It feels like yeah. you're reading something important, and you are. And you are. But, yeah, exactly. So, yes. So that's one thing. I like um, that one. <laughs> okay, so next is the Criterion Channel. Again, this is kind of a pandemic era thing, but you know, we all have access now to a zillion different streaming services. And I love 
how curated and thoughtful that particular one is. I feel like it's the equivalent of walking into a small bookstore, but like everything on the shelf is there for a reason. And the proprietor knows you. And when you come in, they're like, oh, I have something for you. They prescribe something for you. Yes. That's how I always feel when I switch over to the Criterion channel. Uh, You're about the third person who's told me about it. I don't know why I didn't know about it, but I think it bears investing in because um, that's the where you get classic movies and foreign films, right? Yeah, all kinds of things, like things you've heard of that you want to visit again, but also they do mini collections within their things. So for instance, right now there's a set of movies called Lovers on the Run, which is about a dozen movies with that theme. Oh, cool. And so you can get led really easily from one movie to another, and it doesn't feel all worked out by an algorithm. It feels worked out by a human being. Oh, that's nice. That is very nice. Okay, number three. I'm realizing that all my choices are pandemic-related choices. How could they not be, though? You know, before the pandemic, everybody's best thing was their dog or their cup of coffee in the morning. But now life is all about finding new ways to enjoy being home. Well, well, please don't tell my dog that I did not put her on the list. I will not. (laughs) Um, So number three for me is uh, sheet pan cooking. Mm-hmm. I feel like, why didn't I know about this before, that you could make an entire dinner by throwing everything on a sheet pan and cooking it for various times? This has been like a pandemic lifesaver. It saves on dishes. I've gotten really into certain cookbook writers who have gotten on board the sheet pan thing. And The New York Times is very bullish on sheet pan. Did you see that sheet pan insert last weekend? Oh, I have it, and it's going to be... Oh, yeah? Well, I have it tattooed. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) It's going to be my like on my to-do list there's something in there for like sausage with pineapples that really hit my sweet spot yeah i I think sheet pan cooking is kind of brilliant it was what caterers did i didn't know that home cooks could do that right because it seems like you're making such a huge quantity yeah but it actually works out okay because what you're really doing is like usually chopping a bunch of stuff and spreading it in a pretty low layer so that it cooks quickly over a lot of surface. So you don't end up with a ridiculous amount of leftovers or anything like that. Well, yeah. And I keep all my pieces six feet apart. So it makes it very, you know, social <laughs> social distance, my chicken pieces. If, if my husband heard me saying sheet pan cooking right now, he would say like, how dare you? That's my thing. Because oh. I should be honest and say that he has done almost all of the cooking over the last year. He's a fantastic cook and he's really gotten into it. Oh, wow. Good. Lucky you. Very lucky me. Number four. Number four is Mm -hmm. headspace.com. This meditation site, which when I was at sort of high, high pandemic anxiety levels, like last April, really calmed me down. And, you know, we have so much input in our lives that just this thing where you have to close your eyes and be very, very focused on your breathing even for a period of minutes, I found it super helpful. And I never thought I would get into online meditation, but I I really like it. And do you do it as a practice every day or or do you have a schedule? I don't have a really rigid schedule, but I do try to do it every day. Wow. So that's something that's really improved your life, life indoors. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes the rest of my day after I do it much better. 
Wow. So you do it in the morning, I guess. Yeah, first half of the day, sometimes in the morning, sometimes early afternoon. Wow. Okay, that's quite persuasive. Okay. And number five. Last one is my Blu-ray player, because this is sort of the flip side of the Criterion Channel thing, which is not everything streams. And one thing I discovered again and again while I've done book research is, you know, it's not just really obscure stuff that doesn't stream. There's some mainstream stuff that is not available any way but physical media, Mm -hmm. including, since we were talking about Mike Nichols, it's basically the only way to get the movie Silkwood is on a a Blu-ray. So I love my Blu-ray player. They're really quite cheap. I mean, it's not like the beginning of the VCR era or the DVD era where you were paying a lot of money. You can buy a perfectly good Blu-ray player for 40 or 50 bucks. And if you're a movie buff, it's a really good thing to have. You'd be surprised at the number of things you can't get any other way. And when you want to watch one of those movies, are there still places like the video room that rent Blu-ray discs or do you have to buy them? Netflix actually still does their red envelope service, although their selection is not huge. But Uh yeah, you often have to buy them. But you know, when Blu-ray started, they a lot of them were like twenty nine ninety five, thirty nine ninety five. Now, often you can go online and find an old Blu-ray for six dollars, seven dollars. So it's it's just kind of worth it to buy it. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, Mark Harris, for being on the program. We have a friend in common, and as you know, I think, I've been following you on Twitter for years and years and uh, (laughs) seem to uh, endorse or agree with a lot of what you say and really enjoy your presence in social media. Oh, thank you so much. As much as this book, I really, if you love movies, if you love creative people, if you want to read a kind of a very pointed history uh, from the 50s to the 2000s, it's a very interesting book. It really gets it. it, It's riveting, actually. And Mike Nichols was a great subject for you. Thank you. I so appreciate that. And I'm really glad you've enjoyed it. Absolutely. I want to say that my guest has been Mark Harris on Five Things That Make Your Life Better. We produce this podcast in New York City at thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Michael Port, Spresso Rucci, Sam Haft, and Boko Half. Everything that we talked about today, maybe some stills from some of Mike Nichols' movies and a sheet pan, <laughs> will be on my website at lisabernbach.com. You can find Mark Harris on Twitter at Mark Harris NYC or Facebook, Mark Harris NYC. His book, again, is Mike Nichols' A Life. It's published by Penguin Press. As I say every week, Be careful, wear a mask, act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.